Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Madison Condon, Associate Professor of Law at Boston University. We'll be discussing your article, Market Myopia's Climate Bubble, which was recently published in the Utah Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Madison, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Madison, the central argument of this paper is that financial assets have, in the U.S. and and elsewhere, have failed to accurately incorporate the costs and the risks of climate change into their prices. Before we get into some of the causes of that mispricing, I wondered if we could talk about its effects. What are the societal, the financial consequences of mispricing financial assets when it comes to the cost and risks of climate change and how it would affect that pricing? The way that we have decided to incentivize corporate managers and directors, the people who figure out what actions corporations should take, we've decided to incentivize them by paying them with their own stock price. And we expect that they take management signals from that stock price. They're supposed to pursue things that make the stock price go up, not pursue things that would make the stock price go down. So they're supposed to consider forward-facing risks. And the stock price is supposed to impound consideration of these forward-facing risks and therefore also preparing the corporation through this price signal for forward-facing risks. This number both influences the personal motivations of the managers leading the corporations, but can really also influence the corporation's ability to raise money for certain projects or how it decides to allocate capital internally can be influenced by how investors perceive its market in the stock price. And this really matters because it really affects asset allocation in the real economy. It's a problem if managers pursue investments in floodplains and the stock market doesn't have a price signal to that to say, don't do that. That was a dumb place to put them. Don't do that in the future. We're sending signal to other corporations that we thought that was a dumb idea. If that signal is muted, then you're going to start having assets be allocated without reference to future climate risks. And this could be fossil assets or it could be physical exposure to physical assets. If the stock market, for example, is failing to perceive transition risks in the market, meaning the idea that fossil fuels might lose value in the future in a way that the stock market hasn't been prepared for. There's a risk of stranded assets. And there's a say that the market is inappropriately sending a strong price signal to the CEO of an oil and gas company that we think that your business model is really great and you should keep investing in the future. If that's wrong, then we might be actually subsidizing investments in fossil fuels, which later will not be able to be sold at a profit, which means that we might just have invested in the development and exploration of a bunch of fossil fuels that maybe companies will want to sell for cost rather than reap the profit that they would have otherwise, meaning you're sort of in the present subsidizing the production of fossil fuels, even though it doesn't make sense financially in the future. So that's one of the consequences of a wrong stock price. 
Those are some of the effects, some of the consequences of mispricing in the context of climate change and its impact on financial assets. I wonder if we could talk about the cause. Who's causing this inefficient pricing? How are their actions or perhaps their inactions driving the problem? And what evidence do we see for this mispricing and the effect that some of the actors who are driving it might have? This is a hard thing to prove empirically for a bunch of reasons. There are, there are empirical studies out there, though, showing that there's mispricing in the market. One of the, I think, the best examples is BlackRock partnered with this climate risk consultant, Rodian Group, which actually just recently purchased Rodian's climate risk model. In it, they analyzed three different asset classes for physical risk. It looked at commercial real estate, the equities of utilities, and municipal bonds. And it compared similar municipal bonds in a non-climate risk-exposed municipality versus a highly risk-exposed municipality to see if there was any discount to their trading in the market. And they found, no, actually, the market was not properly accounting for physical climate risks in the pricing of muni bonds. And it did that for two other asset classes, as I mentioned. And there's a bunch of studies like that, although it's really hard to prove that the market isn't pricing something correctly for a variety of reasons. In terms of why this is happening, there's a bunch of reasons why this mispricing exists in the market. One is a lack of the type of data that is needed, although that is rapidly changing. And this new SEC rule that you mentioned will help address some of that data gap. But to assess the physical risks of climate change in particular, you need to know where the actual assets of the location are located. Where does the mining company get its water from when it processes the stuff it gets from the mine? Where do the supply chains of a large retailer, where, what are the roots of the supply chain? Does the factory where they get all their shoes from, is it exposed to extreme flood risk? Like These are risks that we know are real. When Taiwanese factories got shut down because of flooding, it really affected the global automobile market. And it's really hard for investors to assess those risks because where that stuff is located is not a thing that is typically disclosed in financial statements. Even when companies tried to make some disclosure of physical risks, they can sometimes aggregate this information at a level that isn't useful enough. It's not particularly useful to know how much water a mining company uses in general. You'd like to know which mines, where do they get the water from? Is it groundwater? Is it river water? It's very detailed information that you need to assess these risks. So that's not the stuff that's typically disclosed in financial statements. The point I make in the paper is that the actual structure of who is trading in the market influences the assessment of climate risks. And you increasingly in the market have large passive investors taking up a lot of the equity space, owning a very large chunk of the stock market. And they aren't really the ones that are doing the day-to-day -day trades. They aren't the price setters in the market. They're largely passive investors. They rely on the market to set the correct price, all the people who are actually investigating the worth of these companies and making trades upon them. And I just point out in the paper that that is a problem increasingly if these risks are longer term risks and the people doing the trading suffer from short termism in general. And I think that this is an aggregated problem if you look at the decline for the demand of corporation specific information as it relates to trading, the demand for like research analysts in the market to provide that information. I worry about that relationship in the paper, that how do the big passives affect price? And is what BlackRock is doing when it releases this big, large report about asset mispricing in these various asset classes? You normally think you would do if you were a large investor in the market that had discovered large asset mispricings, you would trade on that information and you wouldn't just disclose it to the market. You'd put, advance a bunch of different trades. And so it's interesting to wonder if BlackRock is trying to influence price through other mechanisms by releasing this information. 
to the public is one of the things I wonder about in the paper. I think another thing that is influencing this mispricing is there has been this enormous demand for ESG, which can be explained by a variety of reasons. But I think at least one of the reasons are that people are increasingly aware of climate as a financial risk and they want their investments to reflect this big awareness they have that climate change is coming down the pipeline. But it's a wild west in terms of this fund that you've put your money in that's labeled ESG. What exactly is it doing? What do you think that it's doing? Vanguard has advertised fossil-free funds, for example, that have definitely contained fossil fuel companies in them. So that's another area that I hope the SEC can step into and police a little bit, that if people think that these climate risks are being factored in some way through these investments that have the word climate in them, I think that they are mistaken. And that could also be influencing efficient pricing. I'd like to get in a moment to the SEC's role in policing some of this, but we've talked about some of the causes, some of the effects, some of the consequences, some of the concerns around mispricing due to climate risk. And I wonder if we can maybe think about an alternative world. What would be different about the world of the markets and the physical world that we live in if climate risks and cost were being efficiently incorporated into asset prices? What would be different in that case? That's a very interesting question because one of the problems about climate change in general is that it's not hedgeable. There's a limit of what information disclosure or even information acknowledgement can really do in the sense that if you realize that you're a major retailer and you're a major port that you rely on is likely to be shut down by climate change in the next, I don't know, 20 years or something. It's hard to figure out what exactly you should do about that. Do you have to move all of your operations? Climate change is so macro and so systemic that it requires a concerted government response to really address the issue. It can't be hedged away. It has to be actively mitigated. That's my big complicated answer. I think the shorter low-hanging fruit answer is that in a, thing, a place that a lot of people have been looking is in the real estate market and the housing market. Although it's there's definitely evidence out there that the risk of sea level rise has been partially priced in the most high-risk areas, although not fully priced in. And that market, again, it's complicated to talk about because it's very much influenced by the availability of federal flood insurance, which masks the risk in addition. But that's an intentional messing up of the price signal, but it has broader effects on the housing market outside of the flood zones in addition. If the federal flood insurance program were to actually charge actuarial rates, which they in theory are supposed to be doing, that will have a massive repricing effect in the market, I think. In terms of corporate activity, this paper, this is such a fast moving area that this paper in some ways has already felt dated to me, although it's just, it's very hard to talk about the market monolithically. It really depends There's many different types of corporations in many different sectors, many different types of investors. They're all at different paces along the pathway towards considering and pricing climate risks. I think it was Hewlett Packard in Texas. There was a big Wall Street Journal article. They did a very aggressive assessment of its physical risks and in their disclosure to investors explained why they were moving a bunch of different facilities because of this assessment of physical risk. That's the type of things we're looking for when we are looking for climate risk disclosures. It's just happening at very varied paces through the market. As you mentioned, the the market isn't monolithic, but I'd like to maybe think about the securities regulation side of this. And I'd like to talk about the, the SEC climate rule too, as we get to that stage of our conversation. But are there any securities regulation interventions that can make a difference on closing this pricing gap? Is this a job for disclosure or is stronger medicine perhaps needed to close this pricing gap? 
I think that disclosure is a very necessary first step. I think that there is a role for all financial regulators in this space. And this is a thing that the Biden administration has acknowledged and, in fact, is making a lot of progress on. So basically every Biden financial agency, the OCC, the FDIC, the Federal Insurance Office at Treasury, the SEC, obviously, they all now have a mandate to consider climate risk as a financial risk. And I think that they all have a role to play. The banks definitely have unpriced climate effects. The institutional investors, the small banks, the mortgage lenders, these are all financial actors that have a role to play in assessing climate risk. And the SEC's disclosure rules, I think, play a very fundamental first step. You really need accurate information before you start building regulatory regimes for then assessing risk exposure and designing rules for how to address that risk exposure. And so Right now, investors and regulators don't really have the complete landscape of certain corporate emissions, but they haven't been subject to assurance. They haven't been audited. They haven't really been risk of a lot of private litigation. And so now that these are becoming officially required, we'll start to get the correct data from all these companies to start thinking about risk exposures at the level of financial institutions. We're recording this conversation on Thursday, March 24th, and a few days ago on Monday, the SEC, as you mentioned, released its really long-awaited climate disclosure rules, and it was a pretty massive draft release of, I think, around 500 pages or so. And I know you've been very actively engaged on this topic this week, although perhaps with 500 pages, it's a lot to digest in a few days. But I wonder if you could maybe offer some initial reactions or thoughts about this climate disclosure rule, or at least the draft of it. How effective do you think that the rule might be in addressing some of the problems we've talked about here? And are there any maybe disappointments or causes, concerns that you see? Yes, the rule was long awaited and also long, and I definitely have not read all 510 pages. But my first reaction is I'm just very impressed, actually, by all the financial regulators at the SEC. I spend a lot of my time annoyed at the financial community for not speaking the climate language fast enough. And I think that they just downloaded a tremendous amount of information from the private sector and from the EU regulators and really made a very detailed, I think, successful proposal. So kudos to all the wonks at the SEC. I'm not sure I have that many disappointments. I'm still digesting. I I think more about physical risk these days than transition risk, at least at this moment in my scholarship. I'm working on a big thing about physical risk and where that information comes from. And that's a space I think a lot of the conversation has been around scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, fights about scope three. And a lot of the text of the rule is about that stuff. There is stuff in there about disclosure of physical risk in, in some ways. Quite specifically, I think in the future, there has to be more conversations about what that physical risk disclosure looks like and more guidance around that. I think it's a room to be built upon and that I'll be commenting on, I hope. But in general, I think it's a very strong rule and consistent, frankly, with what the private sector has been doing, though at a varied pace. It builds upon what, what all the investment community and the corporates have really already been practicing in recent years. The prediction business is always fraught and predictions are hard, but I couldn't restrain myself from asking for any predictions that you might see in terms of how this draft rule might develop into a final rule. Do you have prediction or anticipations around what will invariably be litigation over the rule? And 
how do you envision, let's say that the rule goes into effect, it survives litigation, it goes into effect, I believe, in 2025. How do you envision industry complying with this rule? What growing pains do you anticipate we might see? Yeah, interesting set of questions. So yes, this rule will get sued in a bunch of different ways. And Hester Peirce, the Republican commissioner on the SEC, gave a very long speech when the rule was released and hinted at a bunch of litigation risks that we can see coming. One that everyone anticipates is a First Amendment challenge saying that this is coerced speech and violates corporations' First Amendment rights. I know nothing about the First Amendment, frankly. I know Sarah Hahn knows a lot about it. I know that a lot of people are going to be looking at the conflict minerals rule, which was the SEC rule that did fail due to First Amendment reasons, and trying to think about the ways in which that decision will apply to litigation over this rule. Another thing that Purse hinted at was litigation over the major questions doctrine, which is an area which I know more about because I'm an environmental law professor. And yes, I think that the allegation in the courts, possibly the Fifth Circuit, will be that this is a major question, like they always allege with everything that ever has to do with climate change. And that had Congress intended for this to be within the SEC's authority, they would have said it explicitly. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know enough about the courts to predict what will happen with that. Although I'm an environmental law professor and I like live in fear of the major questions doctrine. So we'll see. Are there any key takeaways or open questions you'd like listeners to be thinking about either from this interview or from the paper itself? I've been surprised. I've been talking to journalists, financial journalists, and climate people outside of the financial regulation space. And I've been surprised at the confusion I've sensed about Scope three emissions, which are supply chain emissions, they're emissions that you're not directly, quote unquote, responsible for. You don't either purchase electricity for or, or burn it on for a coal on site. And I see a lot of questions over how are supply chain emissions material? There's so many of them. You're asking investors to do an impossible accounting exercise. You can't possibly make me know not only the emissions of people who supply me, but who supply them, who supply them. What a ridiculous request from the SEC. And I guess I just want to take this moment to say I think that misunderstands how scope three is assessed and collected by issuers and how investors use it. The SEC has asked that scope three be reported if material subject to the greenhouse gas protocol, and also that issuers be extremely clear about what has been counted or not in their scope three emissions. So the mandate is not to spend as much money as possible to go hunt down all of your suppliers and their suppliers to do some sort of impossible emissions accounting. It's more to account for the transition risks that your whole business model is exposed to and let us know what you've been able to find so far about the risk that you are exposed to and be really clear about what you've counted and not counted. Because scope three, that number, the supply chain risk number is being used by investors in the market now with or without disclosure and with or without auditing and assurance. And either there's a risk that those numbers are wrong. So that's a great use of the rule. But one of the messages I'm hearing from investors is that are going to estimate your scope three emissions, whether or not you tell us what they are. And you might not like our guests. And so you might want to demonstrate that your emissions have been reducing over time. And it's actually in your best interest to have these numbers be accurate and coming from you and not our own guests and third parties guests. And that's the message, I guess I would say, is that scope three emissions are not some sprawling, impossible accounting mechanism and that they're, they are material and they're used by investors 
All right. So it's early days yet, but we've got some perhaps early thoughts to consider as this rule is developing. And we are sure to see some litigation and perhaps some developments on industry's efforts to comply with the rule once a final rule is available. Our guest today has been Madison Condon, Associate Professor of Law at Boston University. We've discussed our article, Market Myopia's Climate Bubble, which was recently published in the Utah Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Madison, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.